Why can't we all just get along? It's a problem as old as humanity. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. What's keeping us from finding solutions to the kind of blood feuds and terrorist insurgencies that threaten peace and stability from Baghdad, Kandahar, to Manhattan, or wherever you call home? Security measures on their own will never solve the problem. John Alderdice comes from Belfast and is a member of the British House of Lords. Using his training as a psychiatrist, he was a major player in bringing about an end to the infamous troubles of Northern Ireland. If you analyze things in terms of political positions, moralistic terms, then you will get people divided. Let's talk about people as people, and that's a very different way of viewing it. Lord Alderweiss joins us today to share his approach for finding real solutions to the conflicts between fundamentalist ideologies and modern secular societies. Stay with us for a look at fundamentalism, terrorism, and roadmaps to peace on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, this is Rick Steves. Rather than venturing into a foreign land today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're delving into a subject that affects the security and peace of mind of people all over the world. Our guest is John Alderdice, actually Lord Alderdice. He helped to negotiate the Good Friday Peace Accord that created a power-sharing government in Northern Ireland back in 1998 and finally brought an end to the Troubles. He's a trained psychiatrist and an elder in the Presbyterian Church of Ireland, where his father was a pastor. Dr. John Thomas Alderdice is also known as the Right Honorable Baron Alderdice, a highly respected and decorated leader in the area of conflict resolution. It is indeed our honor today to have him as our special guest for the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves as we discuss fundamentalism, terrorism, and roadmaps to peace. Lord Alderdice, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Rick. Nice to be with you. I've never really had a lord at this table. <laughs> so, like, do your friends suddenly have to call you lord? No, my friends don't. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yes, it's it's a title a little bit like you would use senator or ambassador or even president. It's, uh, in our case, not just a title that we have for life, but a seat in the parliament which we have for life. In the case of uh, the titles for uh, senators and others here, of course, they, they've got to stand for election. We're talking North Ireland here. We're talking about London. London. Oh, so this yes. is the British this, House of this Parliament. This is the British House of Parliament, and there are two chambers. The lower chamber, the House of Commons, is elected, and the upper chamber, the House of Lords, has a number of different components. There are appointed peers like myself who have achieved certain things and have been put into the Parliament for their lifetime. There are bishops who are representatives of the Church of England. There are law lords. The House of Lords is our Supreme Court at present, though that will change in the future. And there are still a few hereditary peers, not very many, people who are there from previous generations. Because those hereditary peers are the ones that give the House of Lords kind of a uh, comical bad reputation, aren't they? Well, certainly people find it very difficult to understand why there are people who are there as hereditary peers. And that is something that will change, I think, in the next few years. But historically, the reason for it was that if you go back a thousand years, the king couldn't run the country without having the most powerful people on his side. And the most powerful people were the landowners who uh, had tenants who they could call up and arm and have their own private armies. And if the king wanted to go off and fight the French or go on a crusade or whatever, he had to have the lords on his side so that they would produce soldiers and that they would produce taxes because you can't run a country without them either. And so in those days, having land meant that you were powerful. After the Industrial Revolution, uh, that began to change because land was still important, but the barons of industry were actually the people who had the real power, the money, and you had to keep them on your side. And so increasingly, the hereditary peers became big business. Huh. But in both cases, whether it's land or business, you could hand that on to the next generation. Okay. And that's where the hereditary component came in. Well, that would make sense because the ownership of the land would go on to the next generation or the ownership of the factory or whatever. Exactly. But then you had the messy reality of democracy to deal with, so you brought in this House of Commons. Well, the House of Commons had gradually developed over quite a long period of time, and, and absolutely, that is now really the primary chamber, and the House of Lords is really the revising chamber. But the other change in the House of Lords was as you move to an information age, 
mm-hmm. where it's all about people's own understanding and what people's own experience and their own networks. That's not something you can hand on to your children. That's something you have to do for yourself. So you've been made a lord as an honor for heroic contributions to your society in the area of peace and recognition of your expertise in that way. And they want your input into governmental matters in the future, apparently. You get a seat at the table. That's right. Now, um, do you get to send that down to your kids? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, they'll have to make their own way. Uh, they <laughs> okay. do get an honorary title, but, they not do. One, but not one they can hand on to their kids. So your kids, so they, they become one the, generation. They become the honorary. So they so, are so, the, so the, the... The honorable, my son Peter is the honorable Peter. My son Stephen is the honorable Stephen. But, but their sons they are don't absolutely them. nothing unless no, their dads excel like you they, have excelled. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to call you Lord Alderdice. You seem a very familiar... John will person. also be Is fine. John okay? But I just, I love calling you Lord Alderdice. Okay, because you have contributed to peace in Britain. Now, you were the Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly, so a speaker in the representative body in Belfast. That's right. You've been honored with the JFK Profiles and Courage Award in 1998. Yes, And tell us what that was for. Well, that was because, along with a number of people, your own former president, President Clinton, uh, Senator George Mitchell, who played such a key role in our talks, he he played an enormous role, uh, a very, very important role indeed. And also there were a number of other people who played important roles. Uh, Jerry Adams, obviously, David Trimble, John Hume. And uh, so our American friends here uh, uh, wanted to recognize that. And uh, we all appreciated that uh, very much indeed. Uh, you were also the leader of the Alliance Party, which I understand was sort of the party that was the voice providing an alternative to sectarianism in Ireland. That's right. I, when I was growing up, I, I find it difficult to understand why it was that in a part of the world that's not incredibly wealthy, but it's certainly not poor in world terms. Mm -hmm. Why were we doing such damage to ourselves as people and as a community? And so I trained in in medicine and psychiatry and in psychoanalysis to try to understand it. I wasn't very persuaded of a lot of the political science explanations of post-colonial poverty and all this kind of stuff. So I I did that training and then I thought, well, how do we get that into politics? You know, if you train in psychoanalysis, you stick your brass plate up and people come along to to seek your treatment. But if you're trying to apply that to politics in a community, it's very different. You've got to be able to convey your message through the press. You've got to be able to relate with political leaders. And so I decided I would go into politics and I would get involved with a political party. And in Northern Ireland, there were really five political parties at that time. There were two on the Protestant Unionist side, one more extreme, one moderate. Two on the Catholic Nationalist side, one more extreme, one Mm -hmm. more moderate. And one party in the centre, which had been created some years before, which were both Protestants and Catholics working together to try to create a fair society. So that's where you threw your political So I threw my lot in there. And as a psychotherapist, you wanted to get the sides to lay down on some big... Uh, political couch (laughs) and then let them work it out. Well, in a kind of way, although it was round a table rather than on a couch. (laughs) But the principle was remarkably similar. I mean, George Mitchell was patiently listening hour after hour, month after month to people talking about their fears and their history and their background and how things might be different for the future. Now, let's look at Ireland as a a nice smaller. It's easier to get your head around Ireland, maybe, than the broader issues that confront us today. When I think of the troubles in Ireland, you can think it's a a nationalism thing. You can think it's a religious thing. You can think it's economic-driven. What do you think drove the problem? Well, I think what happens is that when you find some people facing a a trauma, uh, some kind of assault on their identity as large groups of people particularly where that involves them feeling disrespected and humiliated, you find that they fall back into fundamentalist ways of viewing things, not free, understanding, reflective ways of relating, but fundamentalist ways. And they respond with violence and and with fear against the other. And they see the other not as someone with whom they can engage but someone whom they must attack in order to defend themselves against attack. Let me sum up that because that, to me, is really concise and quite crystal. If there's disrespect and humiliation being felt, it drives people into being more fundamentalist in whatever their ideology is or their religion, and then they start to respond with fear and violence. Yes. I mean, there are other reasons why people may become fundamentalists but not violent. People may become frightened by globalization, by intellectual and scientific developments, by the speed of travel, the amount of information that we have. All of these things may make people go back to uh, more simplistic ways of viewing things, but it doesn't make them violent. 
What makes people violent is where they feel humiliated and disrespected. And if that's the kind of trauma that they experience, that's where the danger of violence becomes greater. So stress to your norm can can oppress you, but humiliation is what lets you strike out. That's right. And this is terribly important because there's a view around that fundamentalism leads to radicalization, leads to terrorism. But we know that the vast majority of fundamentalist people from any religious background, Protestant, Jewish, Islamic, Hindu, Israel, don't support terrorism. And actually, if you look at a lot of the people that get involved, the young people that get involved in terrorism, mm-hmm. most of them are not particularly religiously no, no. interested or knowledgeable. They've Sometimes, been humiliated or their family's been humiliated or what defines them has been humiliated. Exactly. Lord Alderdice, I've been thinking for 20 years about this Irish problem in the, in the years I've been traveling there. And I remember when the Republic of Ireland, you know, the, the Catholic part of Ireland, four-fifths of Ireland, was desperately poor compared to Britain and Northern Ireland. And as soon as you crossed the border into the north, it was like good roads and big mm-hmm. entertainment complexes and mm-hmm. fine schools. And then in the last uh, decade or so, the Republic has really, mm-hmm. really gotten its act together economically. And arguably now, it's got more going on economically than the north. And what accompanies that is suddenly there's a more willingness in the north to share power and live together. It seems logical that as the fear of being ruled by a poorer Catholic country goes away, people in the North are are a little less concerned about union. Is there anything to that? I think there is an important contribution there, but you've got to look at why this change took place. One of the reasons the North did not want to leave the United Kingdom in the early part of the 20th century was the big economic market for heavy engineering, shipbuilding and so on, which was strong in the North and not in the South, was the British Empire. By the time you come to the second part of the 20th century, the big market is a united and increasingly united Europe. And that's where the South itself began to develop its education, link in with Europe. And Britain and Ireland began to see how they could work together as an English-speaking component of this united Europe. Well, that takes a little bit of the fear of union out of the whole issue, doesn't it, from a, a northern person's economic needs perspective? Absolutely, particularly as far as the business community is concerned. Instead of them feeling that they were going to lose the old market of the British Empire, they felt they were going to gain not just the island market, but the European Union market. And in your negotiations, did you feel like that was a beneficial card to play? Oh, absolutely. One of the things you could say to unionists, for example, was, let's not talk about the constitutional politics of United Ireland. Let's talk about the economic politics of how we work together to benefit all our people. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Lord John Alderdice from Belfast, and we're talking about the root causes of terrorism and creative roadmaps to peace. Up to my heart the waters rise Up to my heart the waters rise And I break above the waves I feel the sun upon my face In light of the anniversary of the September 11th attacks on New York and Washington, today's Travel with Rick Steves is a rebroadcast of a powerful conversation we had a while back with Lord Alderdice from Northern Ireland. Stay with us as we hear more of his perspectives, which feel more timely than ever, on dealing with fundamentalism, terrorism, and finding roadmaps to peace. Our interview with Lord Alderdice from Belfast first aired on Travel with Rick Steves in 2008. We thought it was useful to revisit his counsel for solving political conflict in this hour's rebroadcast of our conversation with him. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Lord John Alderdice, and he comes to us from Belfast. He's uh, traveling around the United States giving talks on roadmaps to peace and how we can better understand the root causes of terrorism. And we're, uh, we're talking about Ireland because, uh, Lord Alderdice, you grew up in Ireland. You're a pastor's right. kid, a That's Protestant right. pastor's kid in Ulster. That's right, indeed. Absolutely. What was that like growing up with all of this? Um, tell me about that. Well, it was, it was in some ways, you might find this strange, but it was in some ways a very protected environment because out on the periphery of Europe, we weren't experiencing a lot of the difficulties that other people had experienced. Ours was not a country that had been invaded like France and Germany and Italy and so on. So there were some very pleasant, attractive bits. In, and Rick, you visited Ireland. You know it's actually a lovely place to be and people are friendly and hospitable and they sure. like a party and, and so on. But I was also very aware that, for example, at school, almost all the people I was at school with were Protestants. Catholic kids went to Catholic schools, not to state schools. I was also very aware as the 1960s went on of civil rights marches, which while in this country they were about issues of colour, in my part of the world they were about Protestants and Catholics and discrimination against Catholics uh, in my community. And I began to struggle with the moral question as a pastor's kid about issues like discrimination and people being fair and injustice. And I had grown up in a background where what I had heard about was the way Protestants hadn't been dealt with fairly by Britain and how they had sacrificed themselves by volunteering to fight in the war against Germany. Mm. And here what I was learning was, well, that may well be true, but there's another truth, which is that many Catholics have not received what in our part of the world we'd call a fair crack of the whip. Yeah. People hadn't had a fair chance. So what was all of that about? Now, as a child, looking at your dad, who was, must have been a leader in his community as a pastor in a church, he was in an awkward spot. He probably would have a very tough time being progressive when it comes to sectarian issues just because of the pressure from the pew. It was very interesting. That, that's quite true. In fact, I think one of the reasons I didn't go into the Protestant church was because while in the Catholic church, the priest makes his own decisions and the people you know, decide what they want to do, in the Protestant community, the pastor is elected by by the people. And so, you know, is somewhat at their mercy. And so for me, as I watched my father, I could see him struggling to speak the truth, to challenge people, often to say to them that, you know, they needed to learn from the other side of the community, from Catholics, about about their faith and about their commitment and so on. But at the same time, there were certain pressures on him. Oh, yeah. And uh, of course, then I had the the fun as a, as a young fellow of being able to argue with the guy that delivered the sermon over the Sunday lunch table and say, well, no, I didn't agree with what so you said. So did you think that. your dad was just a pawn of Ian Paisley? Oh, no, absolutely. He was nothing of the kind because he was very much opposed to the position that, that Paisley adopted. But and, he had to compromise himself a little bit just to keep his church from dividing? He certainly had to be careful how he would put things because you could put things in such a way that you would lose your people and yeah. then that was it. You had no further I impact think the, uh, the contemporary example a lot of Americans might relate to in their churches is pastors may not be homophobic, but their congregations are. And if they broach this issue directly, it can be divisive and actually split their church. So it's a struggle that they have to know what's true and what's, what's consistent with their faith, but at the same time be pragmatic and not blow everything up. Well, it's a very interesting issue because that one actually came up recently in the House of Lords over the whole question of civil partnerships uh -huh. and whether or not they should not just be available in, in Britain, but throughout the UK, including in Northern Ireland. Many people in Northern Ireland were saying no. And I was talking about this as an issue of human rights and saying, yeah. well, you know, you have your view, whatever you like, but let's be very clear that what you're talking about is the question of whether or not people have the right to have a close, confiding, trusting relationship or whether uh -huh. because of your particular faith view or your particular moral view, you feel it right to stop that person having that possibility in their life. What was very interesting is when you began to think about it in that way rather than in moralistic terms, people began to feel something inside themselves and began to say, well, wait a minute. Maybe we need to be more open on this question. So if people analyze their feelings and what's driving them and their fears about this gay rights stuff, they can actually learn something about their fear of Catholics in their towns? Or, is well, that what you're talking about? What I'm saying is that if you analyze things in terms of political positions or moralistic terms or, or legalistic terms, then you will get people divided. Right. And they will go one side or the other and they will fight with each other and there's no resolution. If, on the other hand, you say, well, wait a minute, 
Let's set that to the side for the moment and let's talk about people as people. Their Protestants, Catholics, gays, straights. Whatever. Hindus, Muslims, black, okay. white, disabled, mentally ill, mm -hmm. physically healthy, whatever you like. And think about those not as some alien group, but as human beings, as people with the same feelings and fears and thoughts and ambitions as you. And you put yourself into their position and you think, how do I want to be able to live my life? And then instead of attacking them, you put your arm around their shoulder and they say, and you say to them, okay, let's find a way together that we can live our lives. And that's a very different way of viewing it. Because most people actually don't want to be fighting with each other. Most people want a stable, peaceful, mm -hmm. prosperous way of getting on and for their children to have those rights as well, whatever background they come from. Did you ever feel like a, a lonely voice of reason in the wilderness? Because when I was in North Ireland, even in this decade, I couldn't believe the deep-seated fear and hate that I saw in these orange parades as parents were marching with little five- and six-year-olds, teaching them how to be bigots. None of these historic differences are going to disappear over a short period of time. And yes, certainly. Do you know what I mean, that image? Yes, absolutely I do. It must they, pain you to see that in your own community. Well, it depends how it's done. And it's quite interesting. You know, whenever I was growing up, the Orangemen used to talk about walking. And then they started talking about orange marches. <laughs> There's <laughs> a difference. even that move <laughs> wow. is, is interesting because people moved from something that was historic and even semi-cultural yeah. and, yes, did have hatred and bitterness in but it. But it could be like a Fourth of July parade in a small town in America. Exactly. Unless you choose to march through a Catholic town and then it becomes confrontational. Absolutely. And, of course, what happened was that people were walking down a particular road or street and then the demography changed over 30 or 40 or 50 years. And what 100 years ago was a Protestant road, now it was a Catholic road. So doing the same traditional route became not just a local cultural celebration, but became a, a, what we call a coat trailing exercise, yeah. an antagonistic thing that caused trouble. And yet people said, well, this is our tradition. We don't want to let go of that. You know, we shouldn't be able to be stopped from going in our own country. Yeah. And of course, the truth is that people had to be got to the point of realizing that, well, if you want to walk there, then you've got to talk to the people who live there and try to find a way of accommodating yourself to that. And this doesn't disappear overnight. There's not some way of magicking it away. It's about creating a process in which people can get into dialogue, listen to the other guy, make sure the other guy hears you and your sensitivities, but also that you hear his and hers and then find a way of working in relationship together. Boy, I just love this. The intensity you have for communication, and you combine that with the gift of gab. <laughs> oh, in the Emerald <laughs> Island, it's a beautiful thing. It's an inspirational thing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Lord John Alderdice. He comes to us from Belfast, and he's uh, dedicated his career and all of his passion and his psychotherapy background into helping different sectarian groups sort it out peacefully. Lord Alderdice, I am really interested in the use of a flag and the tyranny of the majority. And I know in the north in the north of Ireland, a third of the people consider the Union Jack, they call it the butcher's apron, I think. And I've been in towns that look like a big red, white, and blue shrine as you drive through. The curbs are painted the colors of the Union Jack. They're, they're strung across the street. And it doesn't say to me, Britain, it says to me, Protestant Union. What's your thought on that? Absolutely. This is people who want to hold onto their particular turf, their particular piece of territory. They want to mark it out. If you go to other towns and villages, you'll see green, white and orange on the curbstones. You'll see the Irish tricolor where people are saying, well, this is our territory. You can't come here. And indeed, not terribly long ago when there was still a lot of friction in the community and the situation was breaking down with the Intifada, you would find in Protestant areas the Israeli flag going up and in Catholic areas the Palestinian flag going up as people began to link in with division in other parts of the world and see it as similar to their own problem. So you're quite right. These can be emblems of division and fear and sectarianism. However, one of the things uh, when a speaker I was trying to get these two groups of people to work together and the issue of when should we fly the flag came up, I began to talk with people in Sinn Féin 
not just about the flag, but about the question of whether the Queen could visit. And they were saying, well, now this was very difficult. And I said, well, look, let me put it to you like, like this. You want the Irish president to be able to come here. You want her flag to be able to fly on Parliament buildings when she comes. I think that's perfectly reasonable. And if that's going to happen for you, then we're going to have to find a way that it can happen for the other guys as well. So when the Queen came, Sinn Féin said, well, we can't be involved directly, but we will have a dignified detachment. We won't use it as an opportunity to stir up trouble. And in fact, when one of them was interviewed on the radio and was asked, do you object to the Queen coming? He said, well, no, I don't object to her coming. In fact, it's very important that she can come because if I want the Irish president to be able to visit Belfast, yeah. then I've got to say the Queen has to be able to visit it because that's important to unionists, just as the Irish president yeah. visiting is important for me. I love that concept, dignified detachment. Is that your word or is that a standard tool? It was theirs. That no, was theirs. That, those were the words that Sinn Féin brought after they had discussed it together. You know, I was so struck by the Israeli flag flying on small town city hall flagposts in Northern Ireland, the Israeli flag. And I was also struck with the number of Basque and Catalan mm. and Galatian travelers I met in Northern Ireland mm. as if these um, struggling minorities or ethnic groups that had a problem with the big national power would go to Northern Ireland out of sort of solidarity with the Catholic minority up there. Explain again why you would see an Israeli flag on a flagpost in a city hall in Northern Ireland. Well, you'll not tend to see it maybe on a city hall, but you'll certainly see it on flagpoles in, in certain areas when there's, when there's a lot of trouble going on, when, uh, trouble in the Middle East as well as, as with ourselves. You certainly would have seen that. Well, Is it a kind of solidarity among people who are planted as settlers? Well, it's people in the Protestant community, particularly those who are fundamentalists, who see themselves as a kind of Christian Israel, who see themselves as the chosen people, who religiously are able to make those kinds of links. And don't forget that when you go to a Presbyterian meeting house, it's remarkably similar to a synagogue. And that's not just happen chance. Mm. The whole design is not like a, a great Gothic Anglican cathedral. It's a simple meeting house because of that sense of interpreting the scriptures in the same kind of way, of feeling that you are a people who are always on the move because you're always under attack. I mean, hmm. Protestants came to America because they did not feel welcome in Ireland. They did not feel welcome in Scotland. They were driven out by the Anglicans and discriminated against, just as Catholics were. And they came to the United States or to America, as it was in those days, to seek freedom. And you'll find there descendants all the way down the Appalachians and in Virginia and so on. And they feel a kinship with Jewish people who were also persecuted, not just at the time of the Holocaust, but for over a thousand years. Sure. Jews have been driven out of various parts of the world. The, the tragic problem, of course, is that when we as people are abused, it can either make us understand others who are abused or it can turn us into people who abuse. So when people in Europe, for example, left Europe because they were badly treated there, they came to America and they didn't treat the First Nation people here very well when they find them. Uh, when people in That's any a sad part of irony, them, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's, it's one of the tragic things about humanity. And if we can sit down on that couch and recognize our common needs and our common heritage and the common struggles, that's an opening for understanding. If you can begin to see how things are with the other guy and see how remarkably similar they are with yourself, you begin to identify with them and you begin to understand it can be different. And of course, you know, in Europe, which had experienced such terrible war, people eventually came to the conclusion that there was no military solution to war in Europe. There could only be a political solution where people would work together, pool their sovereignty cooperate economically and build a new kind of constitutional structure that meant French and Germans and Italians and Brits all holding their own identity but finding a way of working together. And that became part of the model for us in Ireland. I'm speaking with Lord John Alderdice who comes to us from Belfast. Lord Alderdice has dedicated his career to helping struggling sectarian groups figure it out and find uh, peaceful alternatives to sort through their problems. And this is very interesting, Lord Alderdice, the thought that France and Germany have, have really had a remarkable half-century since World War II. Tell me how the Irish solution that you found 
was learned from or was inspired by the way continental Europe sorted it out after World War II? Well, I think the first thing was that people in France and Germany determined that never again would they return to war. And people right. like Jean Monnet and Schumann and so on, who had been through this now twice within a lifetime, First and Second World War. Second thing was they said, the mechanism by which we can work together is our common economic interest. All of us want a better place for ourselves and a better future for our children. But that's not an end in itself. That's the mechanism by which we can work together. But what we're actually about is creating peace. And that means a semi-permanent conference table, really. It means that our political leaders, our civil servants, have to be meeting together all the time mm. to iron out differences and disagreements and move forward together. And so we will create a council of ministers which will meet every month and it will bring together the finance ministers and the prime ministers and so on and they will deal with current problems, past problems and future challenges and opportunities. And there will be all sorts of difficulties. Shown by the recent history of the European Union trying to get more and more sovereignty, it's a struggle. It's a struggle like, I mean, like any set of relationships. And laughable bureaucracy and all sorts of goofiness. But bottom line, Europe has accomplished peace because of, well, the mechanism was the economic interwovenness now. Absolutely. And of course, like any set of relationships, there isn't a solution. Anybody that gets married and thinks... Okay, now yeah. we've got the solution to our relationship. This is nonsense. That's, that's, you've got some work at the thing. Perpetual table. All the time. So that's why Europe has this perpetual table where we work together at our economic interest and our other interests as well. And because so, of that, we've had no war in my generation. Recognizing that there's no magic pill or utopian solution, it's a celebration to have this table to work out the problems as long as you have this foundation of we're not going to go to war. Exactly, exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring creative solutions to violent strife between countries, national groups, sectarian groups, and so on. And we're joined by Lord John Alderdice, who comes to us from Belfast. The windows of the world are covered with rain. What is the whole world coming to Their quarrel often ends where some have to die. Let the sun shine through. Lord Alderdice is a psychiatrist and a life peer and member of the British House of Lords from Belfast. He's used his skills to help negotiate resolutions to entrenched conflicts. That's what he did in 1998 as part of the team in Northern Ireland that brought an end to the fighting there. It earned him the John F. Kennedy Profiles and Courage Award. He's with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend new solutions to helping solve today's conflicts and terrorist threats. You can continue today's conversation by posting your comments in the radio message boards at ricksteves.com. John Lord Alderdice is our special guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. While a lot has changed in the two years since we recorded our interview with him, his message of dealing with fundamentalism and terrorist mindsets is as true today as ever. You can listen to this interview again online in the radio archives at ricksteves.com. I just can't help but be thinking of the parallels with the United States and its struggle right now with Islam, or its, the perceived struggle. Uh, what's your take on that? For instance, you just said, in Britain, we had to decide we're going to talk with the bad guys. Mm. Well, you must, when you read the headlines and you see the American uh, administration refuses to talk to the bad guys, you must go, well, you know, we went down that road and it didn't work. Uh, tell me about that. Well, I, I can understand absolutely where people are coming from because I find myself in that situation for a long time saying... you mustn't talk to these people. It only gives them credibility. It only encourages them. You know, all of these kinds of things. The problem we found was it didn't work. And we went on with more people dying and more destruction and a greater sense of despair and less vision and hope and possibility for the next generation. And eventually, 
came to the position of saying, we're going to have to talk to these guys. Because like you said, the Catholics are not going to go away. Catholics aren't going to go away. Republicans aren't going to go away. Loyalists aren't going to go away. Muslims aren't going to go away. Absolutely. And so what I started to do three, four or five years ago was to take that read across and go and start meeting with people in the leadership of Hamas and of Hezbollah, as well as in the leadership of Israel, and, and start exploring whether, if there was another way of dealing with the differences rather than terrorism, would they be prepared to explore that? So you've gotten involved in this yourself now? Yes. What do you reckon are the underlying gripes of the angry people in Islam when it comes to the United States? Well, people in the Islamic world, and particularly in the Arab world and in the Middle East, believe that they are not being given respect, that they are not being given a chance to run their own affairs, and that although in the West... We talk about democracy, we talk about human rights, we talk about the place of women in society, we talk about all of these kinds of things. Our allies in the Middle East are not countries that actually represent the things that we say that we stand for. And in fact, the ordinary people in those communities don't have a vote, don't have the opportunity of doing all the kinds of things we say that we stand for. And so what they say is, look, and this is what they're consciously saying, there are other things as well. Look, we want to have our part of the world for ourselves. Would you like Muslims to be running the United States of America? No. Would you like us to be linking up with others who kept you in a particular place you don't want to be in? No, you wouldn't. Well, please, just do the same for us. Of course, it's not as simple as that. It's much more complicated. But what it does mean is that they have a strong sense of hurt and humiliation which they feel. There's no point in thinking that they don't feel it. And unless and that, that's uh, engaged with, there's going to be violence. And that's how you, you had the same parallel with the Irish problem. The disrespect drove people into fundamentalist corners, and they responded not by just cowering down and being oppressed, but they responded uh, with fear and violence. Yes. So that you see the parallel. I think there is a parallel. Now, what does saving face have to do with anything? When you look at the way America deals with this and the way Islam deals with this, do you see... Just simple national pride. For, as a psychoanalyst, do you wish people would just lose a little face? If you look at the situation in Iraq, I remember very well in the early period of time people saying Saddam Hussein must have weapons of mass destruction because otherwise he wouldn't be crazy enough to risk everything when he didn't have any weapons. What we discovered later was he didn't have the weapons. So why was it that he wouldn't simply allow the International Atomic Energy Agency in? I think a lot of it's connected up with what you say. Loss of face, the sense of being humiliated. He was at that time highly regarded by some people in that part of the world. If he was to simply, in his terms, roll over, then how would he be regarded as, as a leader? And So as a he knew he had nothing. I mean, apparently he had nothing to yeah. fear. It, was, it would have been logical for him to say, sure, take a look. But it really was a matter of saving face with his constituents. Well, it certainly seems that that must have been an important contributor to it because when everyone went in and had a free hand at looking mm -hmm. around, they didn't find anything. And we didn't recognize that. Well, clearly we didn't. Right. Clearly we didn't understand it. I'm speaking with Lord John Alderdice who comes to us from Belfast today. And uh, we got Reagan on the phone in Dallas. Reagan, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Rick? Great. Thanks for your call. Do you have some comments or a question for Lord Alderdice? I do. It's a very interesting subject. Um, I guess in listening, I would wonder what path we're taking right now, whether uh, shutting our borders and uh, kind of excluding the Muslim community. Are we only exacerbating the problems that we're having today, or do you foresee a way to kind of help the Muslim community to, to save face and to feel ingratiated back into Western culture? Let's be clear, there are security requirements which, if they are thoughtfully embarked upon, can be helpful and protective. But sometimes the things we engage in are not actually very protective and they can be very counterproductive. They simply make people irritated and cross and don't actually protect anybody from anything terribly much. But the point is that security measures on their own will never solve the problem. That's, that's the point. They can have in some cases, a temporary protective impact. But these are problems of relationships. They are political problems. And the only way they're going to be resolved in the end 
is by people sitting down and talking with each other. So I'm not suggesting we abandon all security measures. I, I would suggest we be more thoughtful about them. I, I've still to work out how on earth anybody can hijack a plane with a pair of toenail clippers, for example. But, you know, somebody says nothing sharp, so nothing sharp gets in without really reflecting on, on the issue. But I'm not saying let's not have no security measure. Not at all. It's very important. But let's not depend on those to solve the underlying problem. That's the point. If we had in an ideal world, if, if there was a large table for everyone to sit down with, would you try to bring in some of the terrorist leaders that have kind of these uh, terrorist agendas to try to talk to them? I think the first thing is that getting to the talks is a long process in itself. Even if you had a table, some people would come, some people wouldn't. Some people would say, I'm not coming if he's coming uh, or I'm not coming if he's not coming. It's a very difficult process to get people to any place where they will talk. But in the end, there will be talks between Israel and Hamas, for example. It's not a question of whether there there will in the end. It's just a question of how long it mm-hmm. will take for those talks to take place. There will be talks. Because you don't between think the either diff- of them will just go away. Neither of them is going to go away. Right. There will be no future unless the people of Israel can have good reason to feel safe and secure and at home in their own place. But there will also be no peace unless the people of the Palestinian Authority feel secure and at peace in their own place as well. And that includes people in Hamas as well as people in Fatah and other groups. Reagan, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. John, or should say Lord Alderdice. Again, I'm very excited to have a lord at my table here. <laughs> lord Alderdice, when I, I was just in Iran, and I noticed they love to put out flags. At every cafeteria banquet table, there was like 30 flags, but never the American flag, the Israeli flag, or the British flag. So I hear you say we, and we really are in this together, aren't we? Yes. It's Britain and America. When you make an accomplishment, you see yourself working for America as well as Britain. I see myself as part of the wider world and and America is very much part of my heritage, tradition and friendship. It is for all Irish people, it is for all British people and I'm both British and Irish and that's very important. And what grieves me is when I find my friends doing something that I fear will be counterproductive for them as for all of us. When I see Guantanamo, for example, I remember internment without trial in my country It was done because people thought this is a security measure which will make things better. It didn't. It acted as a recruiting sergeant for the IRA. Mm -hmm. And as I travel in the Middle East, the question of Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and so on has acted as a recruiting sergeant for those that want to organize terrorism. But this is an example, I think, of a government overreacting to terrorism, perhaps for their own political needs, isn't it? And out of fear and anxiety and a whole bunch of things. It's not all simply malign. A lot of it is because people don't even understand the emotional reaction that will be created by their responses. I was in London on 3-11, year 9-11, right? It was a horrible time, a couple of years ago. Yes, yeah. What I understand was Tony Blair, I think, came back from an economic summit he up did, in, uh, in Guinea, Edinburgh. Yeah. And he came down and, you know, he dealt with this. But as a matter of principle, it was back to business two days later. Yes. It was as if the British were not going to be terrorized by the terrorists. Well, we had experienced more than 30 years of it with the IRA. And so slowly people learned that you had to get on with the business. You had to accept that this happened and find a way of continuing life so that it wasn't at the mercy of terrorists, but at the same time finding a political way of dealing with the issue and also not putting everybody into the same package. For example, you talked about Iran. Iran's a complex, sophisticated country. Everybody does not support President Ahmadinejad by any means at all. He isn't the most powerful man in his country. He's not like the President of the United States of America. If we see the people we disagree with all as one homogenous group against whom we must fight, then we get into difficulties. If, on the other hand, we can see this as a heterogeneous group of people who have different views and aspirations, then we can engage with those that may be closer to ourselves. So, for example, all Republicans, all people in the Catholic nationalist community do not have a single view by any means. So when you could get Protestant unionists to realise, actually, there's some people on the other side have a very similar view to you about how we deal economically or with the future or whatever and most importantly about real human issues, then you could open up channels of communication. You know, political parties and governments and presidents come and go, but the people stay. Yes. And I just love this notion of the European Union. It's a bickering 
bunch of tribes, yeah. <laughs> and they've got perpetual negotiation yes. for perpetual peace. And by the way, perpetual and increasing affluence. Absolutely so. I mean, politics is not about how we agree with each other. Politics is about how we disagree without killing each other. And that's what the European Union's about. If we don't have politics, then we end up with violence. This is how, as a community, we transform our aggressive and fearful and envious and rivalrous impulses <laughs> into something that is productive and positive for all of us and produces culture and art and intellectual activity and science and economic development. Coming from a pastor's kid who grew up in Belfast as a Protestant who received the John F. Kennedy Profiles and Courage Award for finding psychoanalytical alternatives to violence when it comes to dealing with problems that flat out aren't going to go away. <laughs> We've got Adrian on the line in Seattle. Hi, Adrian. Um, hi, Rick. Hi, Lord Alderdice. Hi there. I have an observation um, and a question which I would be very interested to hear um, your response. Uh, my observation is that it seems that the one common denominator, the one common obstacle in really achieving the ability to discuss and find political solutions to areas of violence is the depth of the religion in the two parties and the depth of the identification of themselves as a religious group and the identification of people outside of that religious group as the other. It seems to be a huge stumbling block in the ability to move forward into, you know, secular and civil agreements which bring peace. And the other thing that I was interested in hearing your um, thoughts upon is that the terrorism, as defined in the Oxford English Dictionary, is government by intimidation. And the American Heritage and other um, dictionaries actually list terrorism as individuals or groups coercing government. And one of the things I've noticed recently is that the only discussion regarding terrorism um, in our media is about one of those terrorisms, which is individuals trying to coerce government. And what we seem to be ignoring is government governing by terrorism. And in the case of the Israel-Palestine issue, um, there's the additional thing of how much money America actually gives to Israel and how little money America gives to the Palestinians and how any Arab could ever believe that America was an independent observer and was basically objective in the peace process. And I was wondering what your comments would be on those two things. First of all, as far as, as terrorism and the use of terror is concerned, of course it's absolutely the case that authoritarian governments can use terror to get their way. What we generally mean by terrorism is, is a particular tactic of asymmetric warfare. It's what people do when they are less powerful and they are faced with a very powerful government or array of governments. And it's a set of techniques that have been developed over 150 and more years for asymmetric warfare. If we start moralizing about whether it's good, bad or indifferent, that doesn't actually help us to understand the thing. This, this is what happens when people feel there's no alternative way of making change and this is a, an asymmetric warfare tactic. It's different from the use of terror by governments, not morally different. It's just a different way of using force. Now, when we come to the question of whether or not America can be a non-partisan force in dealing with things in the Middle East, I think in principle... If we're talking about bringing people together, then you try to model that. If you've got family therapy or marital therapy, you get two therapists that can work together to work with the two partners that aren't getting on. So for me, rather than America coming in and trying itself to deal with the problems of the Middle East, not only for the reasons you mentioned, but for other reasons as well, it's much better to cooperate with others so that, for example, America working with Europe if only Europe would actually shoulder its responsibilities in helping to deal with it. It's working together and modelling that working together. Now, when it comes to the religious question, you're certainly right that religion can become a badge of identity. But that's a different thing from faith, because many of the people who describe themselves as Protestant or loyalist paramilitaries in Northern Ireland never go to church at all. The issue of their religious identity is not something that's about faith. It's about their group as over against the other person's group. Now, there's a complicated relationship between religious faith, particularly when it's of a fundamentalist kind, and the use of violence and the use of force and the identity of, of communities. But to simply say, as, as often people can be tempted to, the problem is religion, let's get rid of religion, is neither a solution nor even a possibility. Adrian, thanks for your comment. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.
We have an email from Nancy in Kennesaw, Georgia. And uh, Lord Alderdice, this is interesting. She writes, Clint Eastwood made a comment once that as long as a conflict sums up to my God is better than your God, there will never be a resolution. With so many holy sites in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, do you think any group will surrender control of their holy sites? Is peace even possible in the Middle East, given this? It's not just my God is bigger than your God. It could be my country is bigger than your country. My army is bigger than your army. My political views are more persuasive than your political views. It's rivalry. It's an inappropriate, unhelpful, pathological competition between people. That's absolutely right. You can see it in the playground and you can see it in the world stage. And the issue is how can we help people to move towards constructive competition rather than slip back into violent, destructive rivalry? And that's what we do with our children and that's what we do when we work in our local communities and that is what we've got to try to do on the wider scale as well. You've done a lot of thinking about this, obviously. Is there any place you would recommend for Americans who care about this to read or or learn more about this? Uh, What book would you recommend? I think what I would strongly suggest is that people try to use the Internet to access news information from other places than just the United States. My dad used to say to me, John, listen to the BBC, then listen to RTE, which is the Southern Irish Radio and Television Broadcasting Add them together and divide by two, and you'll get somewhere where it is. So please, Americans, listen to European broadcasters, listen to Middle East broadcasters, use the Internet to get all the information, and then make your own thoughtful, reflective judgment and contribution to world peace. Lord John Alderdice, you are a family man. You've raised three kids. You're living still in Belfast in an area that's got some tentative, fragile peace and hope. I can look at it now. I can't say with confidence there will never be trouble again, but I can say with confidence there is hope. There's a vision of a better future. There's reason to believe in new possibilities for my children and my children's children. And that is something that makes it worthwhile. And you are an inspiration. Thank you so much for your interest in these problems far beyond the struggles of Ireland as our country confronts some pretty serious challenges in the years ahead. Thank you for being with us, Lord Alderdice. And thanks for the conversation, Rick. I've enjoyed it very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.